Hello, and welcome to Bominable Bominations. I'm your host, Thomas, and this is the place for serialization of turn of the 20th century horror and discussion of other such topics. Welcome back to our ongoing serialization of The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. In today's chapters, we get a brief moment of respite and the welcome return of Pepper the dog. If you're new to the show, you might want to go back and listen to our previous episodes, and maybe subscribe while you're at it. Anyway, on we press with the story of The House on the Borderland. 10. The Time of Waiting The sun was now warm and shining brightly, forming a wondrous contrast to the dark and dismal cellars. And it was with comparatively light feelings that I made my way up to the tower to survey the gardens. There I found everything quiet, and, after a few minutes, went down to Mary's room. Here, having knocked and received a reply, I unlocked the door. My sister was sitting quietly on the bed, as though waiting. She seemed quite herself again, and made no attempt to move away as I approached her, yet I observed that she scanned my face anxiously, as though in doubt, and but half assured in her mind that there was nothing to fear from me. To my questions as to how she felt, she replied, sanely enough, that she was hungry and would like to go down to prepare breakfast, if I did not mind. For a minute, I meditated whether it would be safe to let her out. Finally, I told her she might go, on condition that she promised not to attempt to leave the house or meddle with any of the outer doors. At my mention of the doors, a sudden look of fright crossed her face, but she said nothing, save to give the required promise, and then left the room, silently. Crossing the floor, I approached Pepper. He had waked as I entered, but beyond a slight yelp of pleasure and a soft rapping with his tail had kept quiet. Now as I patted him, he made an attempt to stand up and succeeded, only to fall back on his side with a little yowl of pain. I spoke to him, and bade him lie still. I was greatly delighted with his improvement, and also with the natural kindness of my sister's heart in taking such good care of him, in spite of her condition of mind. After a while, I left him, and went downstairs to my study. In a little time, Mary appeared, carrying a tray on which smoked a hot breakfast. As she entered the room, I saw her gaze fasten on the props that supported the study door. Her lips tightened, and I thought she paled slightly, but that was all. Putting the tray down at my elbow, she was leaving the room quietly, when I called her back. She came, it seemed, a little timidly, as though startled and I noticed that her hand clutched at her apron nervously. Come, Mary, I said. Cheer up. Things look brighter. I've seen none of the creatures since yesterday morning, early. She looked at me in a curiously puzzled manner, as though not comprehending. Then, intelligence swept into her eyes and fear, but she said nothing beyond an unintelligible murmur of acquiescence. 
After that, I kept silence. It was evident that any reference to the swine things was more than her shaken nerves could bear. Breakfast over, I went up to the tower. Here, during the greater part of the day, I maintained a strict watch over the gardens. Once or twice, I went down to the basement to see how my sister was getting along. Each time I found her quiet and curiously submissive. Indeed, on the last occasion, she even ventured to address me on her own account with regard to some household matter that needed attention. Though this was done with an almost extraordinary timidity, I hailed it with happiness as being the first word voluntarily spoken since the critical moment when I had caught her unbarring the back door to go out among those waiting brutes. I wondered whether she was aware of her attempt and how near a thing it had been, but refrained from questioning her, thinking it best to let well alone. That night, I slept in a bed, the first time for two nights. In the morning, I rose early and took a walk through the house. All was as it should be, and I went up to the tower to have a look at the gardens. Here again, I found perfect quietness. At breakfast, when I met Mary, I was greatly pleased to see that she had sufficiently regained command over herself to be able to greet me in a perfectly natural manner. She talked sensibly and quietly, only keeping carefully from any mention of the past couple of days. In this, I humored her, to the extent of not attempting to lead the conversation in that direction. Earlier in the morning, I had been to see Pepper. He was mending rapidly and bade fair to be on his legs, in earnest, in another day or two. Before leaving the breakfast table, I made some reference to his improvement. In the short discussion that followed, I was surprised to gather from my sister's remarks that she was still under the impression that his wound had been given by the wildcat of my invention. It made me feel almost ashamed of myself for deceiving her, yet the lie had been told to prevent her from being frightened. And then, I had been sure that she must have known the truth later when those brutes had attacked the house. During the day, I kept on the alert, spending much of my time, as on the previous day, in the tower. But not a sign could I see of the swine creatures, nor hear any sound. Several times the thought had come to me that the things had at last left us, but up to this time I had refused to entertain the idea seriously. Now, however, I began to feel that there was reason for hope. It would soon be three days since I had seen any of the things, but still I intended to use the utmost caution. For all that I could tell, this protracted silence might be a ruse to tempt me from the house, perhaps right into their arms. The thought of such a contingency was, alone, sufficient to make me circumspect. So it was that the fourth, fifth, and sixth days went by, quietly, without my making any attempt to leave the house. On the sixth day, I had the pleasure of seeing Pepper once more upon his feet, and, though still very weak, 
he managed to keep me company during the whole of that day. 11. The Searching of the Gardens How slowly the time went. Never a thing to indicate that any of the brutes still infested the gardens. It was on the ninth day that, finally, I decided to run the risk, if any there were, and sally out. With this purpose in view, I loaded one of the shotguns, carefully choosing it as being more deadly than a rifle at close quarters, and then, after the final scrutiny of the grounds, from the tower, I called Pepper to follow me and made my way down to the basement. At the door, I must confess to hesitating a moment. The thought of what might be awaiting me among the dark shrubberies was by no means calculated to encourage my resolution. It was but a second, though, and then I had drawn the bolts and was standing on the path outside the door. Pepper followed, stopping at the doorstep to sniff suspiciously and carrying his nose up and down the jams, as though following a scent. Then, suddenly, he turned sharply and started to run here and there in semicircles and circles all around the door, finally returning to the threshold. Here, he began again to nose about. Hitherto, I had stood watching the dog, Yet, all the time, with half my gaze on the wild tangle of gardens stretching round me. Now I went toward him, and, bending down, examined the surface of the door where he was smelling. I found that the wood was covered with a network of scratches, crossing and recrossing one another in inextricable confusion. In addition to this, I noticed that the doorposts themselves were gnawed in places. Beyond these, I could find nothing, and so, standing up, I began to make the tour of the house wall. Pepper, as soon as I walked away, left the door and ran ahead, still nosing and sniffing as he went along. At times, he stopped to investigate. Here, it would be a bullet hole in the pathway, or perhaps a powder-stained wad. Anon, it might be a piece of torn sod, or a disturbed patch of weedy path, but, save for such trifles, he found nothing. I observed him critically as he went along, and could discover nothing of uneasiness in his demeanor to indicate that he felt the nearness of any of the creatures. By this, I was assured that the gardens were empty, at least for the present, of those hateful things. Pepper could not be easily deceived, and it was a relief to feel that he would know and give me timely warning if there were any danger. Reaching the place where I had shot that first creature, I stopped and made a careful scrutiny, but could see nothing. From there I went on to where the great coping stone had fallen, it lay on its side, apparently, just as it had been left when I shot the brute that was moving it. A couple of feet to the right of the nearer end was a great dent in the ground, showing where it had struck. The other end was still within the indentation, half in and half out. Going nearer, 
I looked at the stone more closely. What a huge piece of masonry it was, and that creature had moved it, single-handed, in its attempt to reach what lay below. I went round to the further end of the stone. Here I found that it was possible to see under it for a distance of nearly a couple of feet. Still, I could see nothing of the stricken creatures, and I felt much surprised. I had, as I have before said, guessed that the remains had been removed. Yet I could not conceive that it had been done so thoroughly as not to leave some certain sign beneath the stone, indicative of their fate. I had seen several of the brutes struck down beneath it, with such force that they must have been literally driven into the earth, and now not a vestige of them was to be seen, not even a bloodstain. I felt more puzzled than ever as I turned the matter over in my mind, but could think of no plausible explanation, and so, finally, gave it up, as one of the many things that were unexplainable. From there I transferred my attention to the study door, I could see now, even more plainly, the effects of the tremendous strain to which it had been subjected, and I marveled how, even with the support afforded by the props, it had withstood the attacks so well. There were no marks of blows. Indeed, none had been given, but the door had been literally riven from its hinges by the application of enormous, silent force. One thing that I observed affected me profoundly. The head of one of the props had been driven right through a panel. This was, of itself, sufficient to show how huge an effort the creatures had made to break down the door, and how nearly they had succeeded. Leaving, I continued my tour around the house, finding little else of interest save at the back, where I came across a piece of the piping I had torn from the wall, lying among the long grass underneath the broken window. Then I returned to the house and, having rebolted the back door, went up to the tower. Here I spent the afternoon reading, and occasionally glancing down into the gardens. I had determined, if the night passed quietly, to go as far as the pit on the morrow. Perhaps... I should be able to learn, then, something of what had happened. The day slipped away, and the night came, and went much as the last few nights had done. When I rose, the morning had broken, fine and clear, and I determined to put my project into action. During breakfast, I considered the matter carefully, after which I went to the study for my shotgun. In addition, I loaded and slipped into my pocket a small but heavy pistol. I quite understood that if there were any danger, it lay in the direction of the pit, and I intended to be prepared. Leaving the study, I went down to the back door, followed by Pepper. Once outside, I took a quick survey of the surrounding gardens, and then set off toward the pit. On the way, I kept a sharp outlook, holding my gun, Handily. Pepper was running ahead, I noticed, without any apparent hesitation. From this, I augured that there was no immediate danger to be apprehended, and I stepped out more quickly in his wake. 
He had reached the top of the pit now, and was nosing his way along the edge. A minute later, I was beside him, looking down into the pit. For a moment, I could scarcely believe that it was the same place. So greatly was it changed. The dark, wooded ravine of a fortnight ago with a foliage-hidden stream running sluggishly at the bottom existed no longer. Instead, my eyes showed me a ragged chasm, partly filled with a gloomy lake of turbid water. All one side of the ravine was stripped of underwood, showing the bare rock. A little to my left, the side of the pit appeared to have collapsed altogether, forming a deep, V-shaped cleft in the face of the rocky cliff. This rift ran from the upper edge of the ravine nearly down to the water and penetrated into the pit side to a distance of some forty feet. Its opening was at least six yards across, and from this it seemed to taper into about two. But what attracted my attention, more than even the stupendous split itself, was a great hole some distance down the cleft and right in the angle of the V. It was clearly defined, and not unlike an arched doorway in shape, though, lying as it did in the shadow. I could not see it very distinctly. The opposite side of the pit still retained its verdure, but so torn in places, and everywhere covered with dust and rubbish that it was hardly distinguishable as such. My first impression, that there had been a landslip, was, I began to see, not sufficient of itself to account for all the changes I had witnessed. And the water, I turned, suddenly, for I had become aware that somewhere to my right there was a noise of running water. I could see nothing, but, now that my attention had been caught, I distinguished easily that it came from somewhere at the east end of the pit. Slowly I made my way in that direction, the sound growing plainer as I advanced, until in a little I stood right above it. Even then I could not perceive the cause until I knelt down and thrust my head over the cliff. Here the noise came up to me plainly, and I saw, below me, a torrent of clear water issuing from a small fissure in the pit side and rushing down the rocks into the lake beneath. A little further along the cliff I saw another, and beyond that again, two smaller ones. These, then, would help to account for the quantity of water in the pit and if the fall of rock and earth had blocked the outlet of the stream at the bottom, there was little doubt but that it was contributing a very large share. Yet, I puzzled my head to account for the generally shaken appearance of the place, these streamlets and that huge cleft further up the ravine. It seemed to me that more than the landslip was necessary to account for these. I could imagine an earthquake, or a great explosion creating some such condition of affairs as existed. But of these there had been neither. Then 
I stood up, quickly remembering that crash and the cloud of dust that had followed, directly rushing high into the air, but I shook my head unbelievably. No, it must have been the noise of the falling rocks and earth I had heard. Of course, the dust would fly, naturally. Still, in spite of my reasoning, I had an uneasy feeling that this theory did not satisfy my sense of the probable. And yet, was any other that I could suggest likely to be half so plausible? Pepper had been sitting on the grass while I conducted my examination. Now, as I turned up the north side of the ravine, he rose and followed, slowly, and keeping a careful watch in all directions, I made the circuit of the pit, but found little else that I had not already seen. From the west end, I could see the four waterfalls uninterruptedly. They were some considerable distance up from the surface of the lake, about fifty feet, I calculated. For a little while longer, I loitered about, keeping my eyes and ears open, but still without seeing or hearing anything suspicious. The whole place was wonderfully quiet. Indeed, save for the continuous murmur of the water at the top end, no sound of any description broke the silence. All this while, Pepper had shown no signs of uneasiness. This seemed to me to indicate that, for the time being at least, there was none of the swine creatures in the vicinity. So far as I could see, his attention appeared to have been taken chiefly with scratching and sniffing among the grass at the edge of the pit. At times, he would leave the edge and run along toward the house as though following invisible tracks, but in all cases returning after a few minutes. I had little doubt but that he was really tracing out the footsteps of the swine things, and the very fact that each one seemed to lead him back to the pit appeared to me a proof that the brutes had all returned whence they came. At noon I went home for dinner. During the afternoon I made a partial search of the gardens, accompanied by Pepper, but without coming upon anything to indicate the presence of the creatures. Once, as we made our way through the shrubberies, Pepper rushed in among some bushes with a fierce yelp. At that, I jumped back in sudden fright and threw my gun forward in readiness, only to laugh nervously as Pepper reappeared chasing an unfortunate cat. Toward evening, I gave up the search and returned to the house. All at once, as we were passing a great clump of bushes on our right, Pepper disappeared, and I could hear him sniffing and growling among them in a suspicious manner. With my gun barrel, I parted the intervening shrubbery and looked inside. There was nothing to be seen, save that many of the branches were bent down and broken, as though some animal had made a lair there at no very previous date. It was probably, I thought, one of the places occupied by some of the swine creatures on the night of the attack. Next day, I resumed my search through the gardens, but without result. By evening, I had been right through them, and now I knew, beyond the possibility of a doubt, that there were no longer any of the swine things concealed about the place. 
indeed, I have often thought since, that I was correct in my earlier surmise, that they had left soon after the attack. Thank you for listening to the latest installment of Bominable Bominations, Serialization of the House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. If you have any queries, complaints, advice, questions, please feel free to write to me at t-u-o-m-a-s-b-a-r-k-e-r-v-o at outlook.com. Like and subscribe to the YouTube channel or wherever you find your podcasts. It's always very much appreciated. See you next week.